This is good old boy Mike from Sips, Suds, and Smokes podcast, and you're listening to Pop Goes Your World. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 149, Foreign Films. Chris McBride, along with Derek Myers, and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. And you'll find us on Twitter at C McBride for me and at Amaron underscore DM for Derek. And popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. Feel free to reach out to us at any time. Derek, what's new in the world of pop culture for you, my friend? Hey, Chris. Got, uh, got a few things to talk about this oh, week, good. but I'll try and ride through them quickly because I know we have a very busy show coming up oh, so a, uh, a few different things that i i had a chance to watch this week uh, all all relatively new stuff uh and i believe all on netflix actually so the first one is a netflix original film that just came out this week called project power it stars jamie fox and uh joseph gordon levitt have you heard of it have you seen the preview for no. it no i have not the the basic premise is imagine a world where you could take a pill and that pill would grant you a superpower for five minutes and the thing is if you once you take the pill the first time, that's when you discover what your power is going to be. And if you take more of these pills down the road, your power is always the same. So if my power is flight and I take a pill today and I take a pill tomorrow, I'm still gonna be able to fly. If I take a pill today and my power is shooting laser bolts out of my fingers, that's my power. It's the pill unlocks some hidden potential and gives you a superpower for exactly five minutes. And it's a really neat premise. And then, um, you know, you've got these recognizable actors in it. Uh, it's it's an action movie uh, with a little bit of sort of the the mystery element because you're trying to find out like who's manufacturing these pills and who's making money and why is it good and why is it bad? And oh my God, people are being forced to do stuff against their will. And one guy's a cop and one guy's a military. So a lot of action, a lot of uh, sequences coming together. It's, it's pretty good. If you like superhero movies, I would say give it a chance. Uh, you know, it's not going to win any Oscars, but uh, it's probably a, a solid seven out of 10. So that just dropped project power is really good. Okay. Um, another one, the TV show, Lucifer, also based on a comic book property, uh, has been on Netflix. The last two seasons went to Netflix. So season five just dropped. It's eight episodes. I binged it in like two days. I really liked it. I thought they took the show in a really good direction. Despite the fact that it's a police procedural style story, it, it really had uh, some good story arc. So got to recommend that one. And um, the third thing I started watching is a documentary series on Netflix called High Score. And it's about the oh uh, my god! I started to watch that just last night. Yeah, so I've watched the first two episodes, and it's been really good so far. Um, it's, so the idea is that it's it talks about like the video game industry and how it started and the ups and downs and who's making money and when they got sued and why they did what they did and it's uh, there have been a lot of other documentaries that have talked about various video game aspects there was a, a 10 part documentary series a couple of years ago that was all about the rise and fall of atari and i remember talking about that on a podcast a while back when i watched that and it was really really good as well so the first couple episodes of this new high score documentary series touches on some of that so i sort of knew a little bit of it already but this is clearly moving towards like esports and the the billions of dollars that are made through console games and online games and i mean they obviously start with 
Pong and Atari 2600 and that kind of stuff. But it's clear that it, over the course of the six episodes, they're going to move through that. So I highly recommend that if people like documentaries, you like video games, you're curious about this subject matter there. I think the episodes run about an hour each. There's six episodes. Um, the last thing I want to touch on, Chris, and this is the one for you personally. Oh, nice. So I mentioned this before on the podcast. One of the shows, one of the other podcasts that I listen to is part of the Ringer Network, and it's a show called The Rewatchables. And yes, you mentioned it's, it. Yeah, it's Bill Simmons uh, and a bunch of his crew from the from the ringer.com, and they pick a movie they love that they think is – uh, a, a movie you can watch over and over again, hence the title rewatchable. And they gush over the movie for 90 minutes to two hours. And they have all these categories and they talk about like half ass internet research, research and, and cast recasting and uh, just outright trivia, best scenes, best quotes, who was at their apex when they did this movie, all sorts of great cat. It's a fantastic podcast for movie people. They did one just this week on Caddyshack. Oh, yes. One of, so, one of Chris, our favorites. I know you and I have already uh, had an opportunity not too long ago to to watch Caddyshack and sort of just talk over it ourselves and stuff. But this podcast on Caddyshack, I thought, well, they're not going to tell me anything I don't already know. I learned so much about this movie that I didn't already know. I thought I knew everything about this movie, but it was fantastic. So if you're a fan of Caddyshack, which, Chris, I know you are. You know I am. I can't recommend this enough. I'll look into the that. The Rewatchables yeah. is the name of the podcast. It's on the Ringer Podcast Network. Bill Simmons is the host. And they talk about Caddyshack, the podcast. This episode runs almost two hours. And then I noticed that just today or yesterday, they did one on the 40-Year-Old Virgin, which I'm really looking forward to. They did one on the Will Smith, Martin Lawrence movie, Bad Boys, a couple of weeks ago, which was really mm -hmm. good as well. I, again, this Rewatchables podcast is quality. They really do their homework. And I love that they they tend to pick movies that I know so well. I don't even have to go back and watch the movie before I listen to the podcast, It's which I find is half the fun. So, mm -hmm. In any case, that's what's going on in the world of pop culture. Lots of stuff for me this week. So anyway, Chris, what's going on in the world of pop culture for uh, you? Before I get to my thing, I just want to comment on the Caddyshack thing, because before we ever did the, the podcast here together, you and I did a full length feature commentary of Caddyshack one time, if you remember, yes. that was just great. Yep. So yeah, we definitely love that one. Okay. So for my thing, uh, I got a couple things. I'm just going to touch base on one. Uh, my kids, they like to watch a lot of streaming services. Uh, so that pretty much means I watch a lot of streaming services, you know, as a result, I wanted to make an observation this week, if I could, um, when it comes to some of the shows from the 1970s, there's been people that have said that those shows were really weird and trippy. Uh, some have even suggested that the creators of those shows may have been influenced by certain substances, you might say, when it came to putting those shows together. <clears throat> Namely, I'm thinking about shows like HR Puff and stuff. Land yeah. of the Lost yep. and Sigmund and the Sea Monsters. I don't know that one, but but I got it. They, the name. I know where yeah, you're going with this. Yeah. They, they were all like, you know, Sid and Marty Croft, right? Yes. But but I got to say, some of the shows that are out now are just as trippy and just as likely to be created by people doing some serious drugs. So my, my case in point, my youngest son was watching a show. I think it was on Netflix. I'm pretty sure. And it's called <laughs> Bread Barbershop. And it's about this piece of bread that has a mustache and he runs a barbershop. And the people in the town are basically made up of donuts and cupcakes and other assorted pastries. And they, they come to the barbershop to get their quote unquote hair done. But really the barber just puts 
icing on them and then shapes it into different hairstyles. It is, without a doubt, the weirdest, trippiest I have ever seen in my entire life. So I just want to say the next time that a millennial tells me that HR Puffin stuff is trippy, I'm just going to direct them to Bread Barbershop because it's way more influenced by drugs than anything that Sid and Marty Croft ever did. All right. I don't think I, 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 I've never heard of this show, but I kind of want to go and check it out after this podcast. Oh, man, it is messed up. But uh, anyway, just to lighten things up a little bit. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, why, why did the office worker nickname the printer Bob Marley? Uh, I have no idea. Because it was always jamming. Oh my god, of course it was. <laughs> oh jeez. Okay. Star Trek could always see into the future, couldn't they? What do you have that we can slap Star Trek logos onto? Shatner's hair. The toys that made us. The TJ Hooker hair. TJ Hooker. I could have auxiliary power back in a few minutes. Yeah, no, I I, I really like it. Con! Why don't I give you a quick scan to make sure you're okay? Kirk got around a little bit. Go. Do you need a tranquilizer? Oh my God. All right. So we've mentioned numerous times here on the podcast, uh, just how much you and I are, are film buffs. We're film nerds. We know that. And I gotta, I gotta be honest. One of my favorite types of films are foreign films. And so how lucky am I to be able to spend an entire episode with you? Not just talking about foreign films, but coming up with a top, five list of my favorite foreign films of all time. I okay, just, hold on, hold on. Let me let me stop you. Yeah. So I know we're going to have listeners that as soon as they heard you say foreign films, deleted the rest of the podcast. They're not interested in listening. So hopefully they haven't done that yet. I want to assure people that are listening to this episode that may not really be into foreign films, that this is not going to be just a film education podcast where we tell you these are the most influential and important foreign films ever. I mean, I'm sure there'll be a few of those on the list, but I have specifically made a point of trying to pick newer foreign films that certainly would not be on a film criticism appreciation of foreign films lecture. So I don't want this to sound like this is two hoity-toity guys that are snoot putting their nose up and being all snooty about, we know foreign films. Oh my God, look at us. We're awesome. This is going to be a fun podcast. So I just want to preface that for people who haven't yet turned it off, but we're thinking about it. Please give this episode a chance. I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. Chris, yeah. back to you. Yeah, good, good point. And I'm, I'm a little surprised too. It's our fifth season of doing the show around here. And we're just now getting around to foreign films because like I, I love foreign films. And I just want to put things in perspective a bit from my take, because my take's a little different than yours. Um, we've discussed in the past here that there's a difference between movies and films. Yes. And I think for the purpose of this week's topic, I'm going to be focusing mainly on films. So unlike what, like you just said, I'll probably focus on more of the quote unquote textbook answers. But a lot of that just stems from the fact that I'm just a film buff and I I really like foreign films a lot. And the funny thing is, if I were to make a list, uh, the top five list of my all time favorite films of all time, just, just films in general, I would guess that at least three of them would be foreign films from my list this week. Wow. When, when okay. it when it comes to film, like as an art form, there are some incredible foreign films out there that just belong at the top of the list for me. Um, so, you know, maybe before we get started on our list, 
you obviously you agree we've talked about this before but just to, as to reiterate you know you agree there's a difference between movies and films are, are you you kind of going down that road it sounds like you might have a bit more newer movies in there I, i'm not really sure um i would definitely say that the majority of my list falls into that film rather than movie okay. i think that people hear foreign film and they you know they think subtitles and for a lot of people they're like i don't want to read I want to just watch and enjoy the movie. And and I know there are some people that they won't watch a movie that's not in a language they know. And hey, if that's your choice, that's your choice. I think you're denying yourself an opportunity to see some fantastic films. Absolutely. But that's on you. Um, and I mean, I don't mean to sound judgmental in that. That's just like my brother's like that. He won't. He's a movie guy. He loves movies. But he is not interested in watching foreign films. He's like, I just I don't want to be reading subtitles. And that's his personal choice. Um, but no, I I would think most of the movies on my list, I would certainly put in that quote unquote film category. Like, I think they're fantastic films that will stand the test of time. I got a couple in there that are a little more, you know, movie uh, kind of things, which which will be apparent as I talk about them. But I also have a bunch of honorable mentions, which we'll sort of get to later, which most of my honorable mentions are more in that film category as well. I wanted to try and keep my side of the conversation mm -hmm. a little more, a, a lot more recent and a little less like hoity-toity, you know, if you appreciate film, you should have seen these. And if you haven't, oh, shame on you. I didn't, I didn't want to go down that road. And I think that a lot of the ones, I'm guessing, a lot of the ones on your list are going to sort of fall into that category where it's like, if you ask a film scholar, mm. what, what are movies I absolutely have to see if I want to consider myself an actual movie buff? I suspect a lot of the movies on your list are going to be those kinds of movies. And hey, I, personally, I suspect I've probably seen a lot of those. Uh, and we'll talk about it as we go through as well, because mm. I took a lot of film appreciation when I was in school doing my communications degree. So, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm not I'm not critical in the sense of of judgmental uh, if people haven't seen it or are not interested. But I think sometimes you really need to give people that push and that strong recommendation of no, no, no. This movie might be 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 years old and from a, a foreign country and in black and white and be subtitled. But believe me you will get something positive out of this and you really need to give it the two hours. I'm just wondering, should I mention some of my honorable mentions up front before I get into the list or how do you want to do that? Well, I'm worried that we may step on each other's honorable mentions yeah. on our list. Mm -hmm. So I, what I'd like to do, and we do this often, either we'll do the honorable mentions up front, which I don't think we should do in this case, or let's go down to number two and before we reveal our number ones, right. we'll do our honorable mentions. Okay, that sounds good. Okay. So um, why don't you kick us off with your number five foreign film of all time, Derek? Okay. What have you got? Okay, so uh, again, just to be clear, clear on this, mm -hmm. we're we're talking. It's more foreign language film, right? So that was the rules you and I had established. Is it's it's because uh, that's how the Oscars now now do it. I think as well. It's mm -hmm. it's got to be a foreign language film. So basically, a movie that's not in English, or at least the majority right. of the movies not in English. So with that in mind, my first one's kind of a little bit of a cheat, but my four through one absolutely meet the category. So my number five is actually a movie from Canada. So not foreign to us, but foreign to many of our American listeners. Yeah, which is uh, the majority of listeners. It, right? It's a it's a film that's uh, uh, prominent, predominantly in French. You could argue it's sort of an equal split English and French. It's from 2006. It's an action film called Bon Cop, Bad Cop. 
And for people who don't speak French, bon is is French for good. So it's basically good cop, bad cop. Um, and the part of the reason I want to talk about this movie is is the way it was put together. But let me tell you a little bit about this movie. So it's it's your sort of buddy cop movie. It's uh, there's a murder that happens and the body is literally draped over the sign that says, welcome to Ontario, welcome to Quebec, where half the body is on the Ontario side when the body's found and half is on the Quebec side. So you have a law enforcement officer from Quebec and a law enforcement officer from Ontario, one who is French, one who is English, come together to try and solve this murder because you find that the the person has ties to both uh, Quebec and Ontario. Um, it's uh, from 2006. Uh, the the officer from Ontario is played by Confior, who uh, is a fairly recognizable Canadian actor. He's got a lot of great film credits. He's one of our greatest actors. Uh, the French actor, his name is Patrick I believe it's pronounced Huard, H-U-A-R-D, maybe just hard. Sorry, my French is terrible, which I sort of am embarrassed to admit as a Canadian. Um, and the way the movie is put together is half the movie's in English and half the movie's in French, because basically half the movie takes place in Quebec and half the movie takes place in Ontario. And on the DVD or when you watch it online, you have the option to select, I want to see just the English subtitles because I speak French and I need the English subtitles. I want to see just the French subtitles because I speak English and I don't understand French. I want to see subtitles for all the words because maybe I'm not sure about either of them. Or I don't want to see any subtitles because I'm fluent in both languages. So it was a clever way for the market. And this the marketing of the movie was sort of uh, uh, done that way as well, where they're like, whether you speak English or French or neither or both, the movie is designed in such a way and the options are there that anyone can enjoy it. And and it's a murder mystery. It's And it takes place, if I remember correctly, because it's been a while since I've seen it, um, in the world of hockey, because of course it's a Canadian movie. And it's like, I think it's like an old coach is killed and an old referee is killed. And it's someone who's killing hockey celebrities. And you have uh, a very uh, uh, good guest appearance from Rick Mercer. Again, if you're Canadian, you probably know Rick Mercer. He's a personality on the CBC. He does a lot of satirical kind of commentary. He plays like the sort of Don Cherry kind of hockey announcer, Ron McLean, the, the guy who's the head of the Hockey Night in Canada uh, thing. So, it, But it's, it's this clever movie where – all the main characters are bilingual, so you can have them speaking English and French, but it's an action movie with some murder mystery. It's all There's a lot of humor in it. I would strongly recommend this movie. If you're Canadian, you absolutely have to watch this. If you're not Canadian, but uh, you just want a good, fun film with a little bit of uh, a little bit of Ontario, Quebec sort of splashed in there. This is really good. I really enjoyed it. Bon Cop, Bad Cop's my number five. Nice. That's a pretty good one. And it's Canadian, too. Which one I it like is Canadian. So not not foreign, but mm-hmm. foreign language in the sense that if you don't speak French, it, it's foreign language to you. So unfortunately, I got to start out with a little bit of a textbook one here. Uh, Akira Kurosawa, Kurosawa. He directed some of, the, some of the best films ever made. I mean, Ron and Seven Samurai, two of his greatest works. However, for me, it's his 1950 film Rashomon that stands above the rest of his work, at least in my opinion. Derek, this film is so good. Oh, Oh. it is. And and the thing is, like any great piece of art, it influences any other art that follows it. And that is absolutely the case with Rashomon. So basically, every courtroom drama, every whodunit, every film that shows multiple perspectives, they all owe a tip of the cap to Rashomon. Uh, The story revolves around the death of a samurai and the rape of his wife. And the story is told through different perspectives by different witnesses, all of whom tell a different story. And the thing is, 
a lesser storyteller would focus on searching for the truth. But at Kurosawa, instead, he focuses on the idea of multiple realities and how everyone has a bias and and also how everyone also has a motivation to lie. You know, in order they either will hide something or they want to skew the truth to, to fit their own needs. So the thing to me is this film is as relevant today as it ever was, not only for the motifs that it studies, but also its style. The, the film is in black and white, but it uses lighting so effectively. Uh, like it, it makes you really think about like what's real and what's false and what's good, what's evil. The symbolism throughout the film is has light basically filtering through the trees and the leaves. So everything just looks mottled. It's just, oh, it, 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 it's really just Kurosawa just sort of filtering the truth, I guess. This is an absolute work of art. And it really goes to show how a truly skilled director can take a script and they can transcend it into something that's that it works on multiple levels. I really wish more Hollywood directors would get insight from the style and the substance of Kurosawa. It would make them better filmmakers and it would completely enhance their storytelling. So Rashomon, number five for me. No, I book. honestly, it, so Rashomon it's, made my honorable mention. It's mentions. so good. Oh, yeah, it, it's fantastic. I, it's just, when it's I was in university, so I know you and I, we've talked about this on the podcast before. When you and I first met and we started talking about movies, I, you gave me a list of 10 movies that I have to watch. Yep. And Rashomon was on the list and yep. I'd never heard of it before then. And then the next semester, because when you and I met, I was at school. My very next semester, I was taking two different communications courses where we were doing some film criticism. Both courses had Rashomon on the syllabus. So I got to see it twice in one semester, both times as part of school credit. And it was like it blew me away. Uh, I mean, again, it's from the 19. It's from 1950, right? I think 1950. Yeah. Yeah. I mean. When you watch a movie that's old, there's certainly going to be a little bit of stuff in there that's dated, but it's a period piece anyway. And yeah, just the style, the the way the story is told, like you said, the perspectives, the story being told from different people. Like there's the movies literally divided in different sections based on who's telling the story. And you get to see the same events over and over again from the perspective of the different people. And the events are not always lining up. Uh, it was actually on, I think, the Turner movie classics or silver screen cinemas or one of those ones uh, like a couple of months ago on TV. And I saw it in the lineup and I, I said to my wife, I'm like, have you ever seen this movie? And she goes, no, but I've heard it's good. And I'm like, you should watch it. So she recorded it. And then again, we have so many movies on our PVR, you know, a, a few weeks later, you know, just out of the blue, she said, oh, by the way, I watched Rashomon yesterday. I go, what'd you think? She's like, it was amazing. So <laughs> nice. it, it, I always like it when, when we can recommend a movie to somebody that they've like either never heard of or absolutely know nothing about and finally get a chance to watch it and just be like, that was every bit as good as I had heard. And yeah, that was, that was her reaction as well. Mm -hmm. So that's a good pick. Yeah. That was one of my honorable mentions. I'm glad you have it on your oh, list. Oh, so good. Yeah. Okay. So you're number four. All right. So my number four, I really think should be lower on my list, but I've only seen it once. And it was in 2009 when it came out. And I honestly don't remember all the specifics. So I kind of had a hard time putting it lower on the list because I, I don't really think we're going to have a lot to say about it. So actually from this point on, my four, three, two, one are all foreign films I saw in the theater. Oh, very cool. I can't remember if I saw Newer stuff. Bad Cop in the theater. Yeah. I don't think I did. I think I finally saw it on, on TV. But anyway, the rest of these I also saw in the theater. So this one is from 2009, and it's a movie from Argentina, and it's called The Secret in Their Eyes. Hmm. It won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film that year. And 
it was uh, considered such a success that in 2015 it was remade in English for American audiences starring uh, Chidawella Giafor, Nicole Kidman, and Julia Roberts. So big cast. Unfortunately, the remake didn't do as well. As is often the case when you try and remake a foreign film, the American um, or the Canadian or the English speaking people who are in charge of, of converting the movie, they often feel they need to make a lot of differences uh, and sometimes it dilutes it a bit. I, again, I haven't seen the remake, from, but from the reviews I was reading, that was kind of the thing. So from what I do remember about this movie, The Secret in Their Eyes is it's a story told sort of in the now and in the then. So it's a... Um, I think he's a police detective or a lawyer. I want to say I want to say he's a lawyer and he's retiring. And so he decides, well, you know, I've lived this long life and I've had this this career of prosecuting all these people and and all these sensational cases. And he goes, I'm going to write a book about one of my first cases that I never actually solved. And so he reaches out to people that he worked on the case with. And there was like a, a, a lady who was in who was the, like the police I think she was the police officer in charge, the detective, but now she's like the commissioner and she's recently retired. She's about to retire. And it's clear that there's like a love pass between these two. Like maybe they hooked up, maybe they didn't, but there's clearly something was going on between them. And so as he starts to write this book and he starts to dig up all these details, he starts to get new ideas about the case because it was never solved. And, um, and then you get the flashbacks of those same characters as younger people sort of in the moment of them, of them investigating the case when it was fresh. And so you have this sort of back and forth story. And by the end of the movie, they solve it or they, they, they believe they've solved it if I remember correctly. And Again, it's it's an interesting and very satisfying ending because you have this sort of unsolved case at the beginning that you're like, geez, like this is really haunting all of them. And with many years of perspective, once they go back and they start to relook at the information and they have new technology, they start to learn new details that the perspective provides. And uh, it was it was fantastic. It, like I said, it won the Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film that year. It was great. It's called The Secret in Their Eyes. It is subtitled. It's from Argentina. But uh, – I would strongly recommend it. And I'm personally, after I put it on my list, I kind of feel now that I got to go and watch the English language version just to see how it holds up. But uh, if you're thinking about that, and you haven't seen either version as per always, I would check out the original first. Anyway, that's my number four. Very cool. Like I say, you're, you're definitely doing more newer ones. Mine are much older. This film, my next film, uh, number four is, is a hundred years old. So the thing is film is such an expressionistic medium when it's used correctly. Um, and, and I'm always a big fan. I've mentioned before, I'm a big fan of like trailblazers and early works that sort of set the standard and influence, you know, works that follow them. There might not be a more expressionistic film ever made than Robert Wien's 1920 masterpiece, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. And the thing is, not only is it a foreign film, and I don't know if this breaks the rules a little bit, but I'm going to do it twice tonight. It, it's, not, it's not in a different language because it's a silent film. Okay. And the thing is, as a silent film, it has to utilize the art form of film to even greater effect if it wants to tell its story properly. And let me tell you, boy, does the cabinet of Dr. Caligari ever deliver. I mentioned the term expressionistic because this film is the best of the expressionistic films. It was it was a style that came out of Germany. Basically, basically back when filmmaking sort of was in its infancy and it was all about these crooked angles and disproportionate sets. Nosferatu was another good one, but, th- but this one is the best film to come out of that movement. Um, it influenced Hitchcock. Uh, he used expressionism throughout his career. 
And the thing is, this film has also been seen by a lot of people to be an example of German society at the time. And like I've said over and over again on this podcast, great films always reflect the times in which they're set. And so in this movie, basically, there's a sleepwalker and his name's Cesar, and they refer to him as a somnibulist. And he basically is a metaphor for German citizens that mindlessly succumb to the will of a tyrant. Right. And the film is full of sharp angles and these uneven sets and these bizarre backdrops. The whole thing comes off like it's just a nightmare. And then we find out that the story takes place inside the mind of this deranged guy. So it has a twist ending. And th- like I said, sorry, did you just ruin the twist ending? For well, us? if you haven't seen the the cabinet of Dr. Caligari after a hundred years, I'm probably not spoiling. Honestly, I, I never even heard of it before. You just mentioned it. Oh anyway, my go on. God, it is so you need to watch this. It, it's such an influential film. And so I, it, it, you could argue, and I think you could rightly argue, that it is the single greatest influence on the horror movie genre. I know you don't really like horror movies that much, but this film is probably the number one influence on horror films. And I mentioned before, film can be used as an art form. That's definitely the case here. The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari from 1920, number four on my list of foreign films. On to your number three. All right. Honestly, I never heard of it before. Oh, God, uh, no, that's so why. Bad. I think you brought it up on a previous podcast in the trivia at one point, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Well, seriously, you would watch it and just like wowzers. Like, it, it'll okay. blow you away, man. All right. Well, well yeah, I'll watch a few of the ones on your list I've never seen, as long as you try and watch a few of the ones on my list that you've never seen. I will. All right. Uh, so this one, I really – so my my one, two, three picks, honestly, all week I've been sort of shuffling them. Okay. The only one that was consistent was I felt my number two needed to stay my number two, but the one and three I kept sort of flip-flopping. So my number three pick is a fantastic movie that very well could have been my number one pick. It's from 2007, and it's called The Counterfeiters. I never even heard of it. No. Okay. It's from, it's from Austria. Okay. It, just like the previous movie I mentioned, it won the best. It won the Oscar for the best foreign language film that year, and so the premise with this one is it takes place uh, in and around World War II, and it starts. It basically features a character who is like a master counterfeiter of currency, okay. and it shows him at the beginning like he's he's living the high life, and he's clearly. Um, using his 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 forged money to to supplement his his nefarious lifestyle you see him like partying and drinking and at casinos like he he's clearly good at his job and he probably has like all sorts of criminal contacts and stuff and it's like you see him like living it up but he's a jew and in world war ii in in you know germany and austria like eventually they capture him and they send him to a concentration camp and like everybody else, you just become a number. doesn't matter what you were before. You're classified as a Jew. You're given a number. You go to these camps. And so you sort of at the beginning see him living this very posh lifestyle despite the fact that he's a criminal. And then he's immediately thrust in with everybody else. And then when he's about to be uh, sent for execution, one of the guards recognizes him um, as as a criminal who is a counterfeiter and they basically give him this chance and they say, OK, we're going to send you to this other place instead. And of course, he realizes he's not going to get executed. So he's like, yeah, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And they're like, we want you to help the, the Nazi war machine forge British pounds and American dollars. And what we're going to do is flood those markets with this foreign currency to devalue their dollar, which will help our war effort. And 
at first the guy's like, if this means I'm not going to be executed, I'll do whatever you want me to do. But then he starts to sort of have the, you know, sort of the moral compass comes into play where the, like they basically say to him, you're in a concentration camp. There's no doubt about that. But because you are important to us, we're going to give you privilege. We're going to give you stuff. We're going to give, you know, you're not going to suffer like everybody else because you have a skill that we need and you're going to help the bigger picture. And so you have, it's this combination of like the guy wants to demonstrate that he's as good as they think he is, because if they are like, if these foreign bills don't pass muster, you're, we're going to kill you. And so it's this idea of self-preservation versus do the right thing. And of course the people that work with him to make this foreign currency, they start like, they all start to realize like outside of the wall, they're put in like this, this lab where they make all their foreign money and outside the walls, they can hear people being tortured and executed and they can hear this cries of the suffering. And they're all starting to have these moral dilemmas like we really need to do something. And they're like, yeah, but if we do something, we could die. And they're like, yeah, but if we don't do anything, this is how we got in this spot in the first place is the people that were in the power to do something didn't do anything. And so it's this interesting story and it's based on all based on true story. And, you know, they eventually start to sabotage this foreign currency because they they obviously don't want to give up the the little power and privilege they have that they think they can use to to help the other prisoners. But at the same time, they realize if they do what they're being asked to do, it'll give the Nazis a huge advantage and potentially give them money that they don't have. And if they don't have currency, they can't win the war. So it's it's this really interesting examination of it from a, a perspective that you don't normally see. And the character, the main forger character, like he is absolutely criminal. He is a bad guy. But when you put him against Nazis, he doesn't seem as bad as them. So as the audience, you're sort of like, I don't really know who to root for in this one. But it is really, really good. It's called The Counterfeiters. It's from 2007. It was from Austria. It won the best picture, a best foreign language Oscar. Every It deserved it every little bit. It is fantastic. Mm. Highly recommend. Mm, sounds good. Okay, my number three, The Bicycle Thief from oh, 1948. It's also translated sometimes as Bicycle Thieves, but it's it's an Italian film from director Vittorio De Sica. And it's a post-war film about a this poor unemployed man who finally gets a job, but the job requires that he owns a bicycle to do the work. And it basically involves he's riding the bike around Rome and putting up these posters. So his wife sells their bedding and they buy a bicycle, which of course promptly gets stolen. And this man and his son spend the whole entire film basically trying to locate the bicycle. At one point, he even tries to steal one of his own. But ultimately, the movie ends with the man and his son walking away into a crowd. It's been said before that they're called moving pictures because the best ones should move you in some way. And this one does. And it's part of the Italian neorealism movement in film. It came about after World War II, which usually features poor people. The films are usually shot on location and they use non-professional actors. It's really all about capturing reality in film. The Bicycle Thief is the greatest realistic film ever made, in my opinion. It influenced Italian filmmakers like Fellini, who he also focused on things like, you know, humanity and the human condition, but it also influenced film in general, uh, films that have focused on, you know, the hardships of the working class. And, and even on those films that focus on just the human condition, they all owe something to this film. If you want to watch a, a film that pulls you in, 
and explores motifs like empathy and struggle and humanity and even pride, this is a film for you. Again, it's a work of art. Number three on my list. Nice. On your number two. Yep. I, I, again, I've seen it, but it, it was so, so long ago. Oh, man, it's so good. Um, sorry, who was the director of that one again? Uh, De Sica. Vittorio De Sica. I was going to say, so the De Sica movie that I always remember from my film classes is called Umberto D. Did you ever see that one? I did not. I'm familiar with it, it's, but I'm, I have not seen it. It's basically the same, same idea. This one came out. When did yours come out? Uh, 48. This one came out in 52, so yeah. this was a little bit later. And it's basically the story of a man and his dog, and the dog's mm-hmm. name is Flag. And I remember having to watch this in, in one of my film classes. I think it was one of the same ones where I saw Rashomon. And towards the end of the movie, the guy, um, you know, he believes his dog is has possibly been killed. And he's like running or like, you know, he's running, flag, flag. And I remember just for some reason when we were watching it in class, the, one of my buddies who was with me, he just found this incredibly hilarious. And I don't know why, but he started laughing, like uncontrollable fall out of your seat laughing. And I, it sort of ruined the end of the movie for us, but it became a long running joke for us afterwards. Cause I, I mean, I'm still friends with this guy, but and anyway, Umberto D is a pretty good one as well. Anyway, neither here nor there, a little side quest. Uh, so sorry, what number are we on? Number three, number, number two, th- number two. Okay. So my number two, I, I felt I couldn't put it as number one cause it almost seemed a little too textbooky, but I definitely need to make my list since my list was all modern movies. So my number two is uh, life is beautiful from 1997. Roberto Benigni's from Italy. Uh, it won. It was nominated for seven Oscars, including best picture, best mm-hmm. director, best writing. It won three Oscars for best foreign language film, best original dramatic score and best actor in a leading role with Roberto Benigni himself. Chris, have you seen this movie? Uh, believe it or not, I actually have not, but I did see uh, his uh, acceptance speech at the Oscars when he was like jumping over all the chairs and everything. Yeah. Like, yeah. I mean, Benigni himself is quite a character, but this movie Oh, what, like, there's so many good things to say about it. So again, there's another one I saw in the theater. I think I saw it in the theater more than once, to be honest with you. So the movie is, is in, is told in sort of two parts. Again, it's another world war two movie. The first half of the movie is Roberto Bernini's character meets a woman, falls in love and woos her and tries to convince her that, you know, she is the, the woman for him and he is the man for her. And it's a love story between the, it's a very moving and beautiful love story between these two characters. And by the end of the first half, you realize this story is being told in the months preceding the buildup to World War II and the Nazis taking over. And um, at the end of the first act, the Nazis come and take them because they're they're Jews and they take them away. The second half, which uh, pardon me, the first half ends where they've been. T- they, basically, they get married. They have a young boy and then everyone gets taken away. The start of the second half they they arrive at the concentration camp and the women go over here and the men go over here. So you have Roberto Benini is separated from his wife, his true love, who you've just spent the last hour getting to know, and their young son who is like maybe four years old. And so you have the father and son uh, are sent to wherever the men are sent to. And the second half of the story is Roberto Benini's character as a father who is trying to protect his son from the evils of the world, both both the physical and mental uh, evils of the world. So he he tells his son a story. His son's like, why are we going here? What's going on? And he goes, oh, it's all a part of an elaborate game. He goes, what do you mean? He goes, well, we're in like a, a contest. Like think like a reality show. Not that he would have used those terms, but that sort of idea. He goes, think of it like an elaborate game. We are all put in this this area. We're all given these special special clothing so that we all look the same, so that nobody has any advantages. And 
we're trying to earn points by doing the things that these people tell us to do better than anybody else. And if we get enough points at the end of the game, we win an army tank. Because the kid was all like, oh, my God, I've always wanted to, to drive an army tank. And the dad's like, if we get enough points, we get a tank. And so the son uh, doesn't understand uh, German. And so when the Germans come in and start, like, barking orders and tell everyone what to do, the the father says, oh, I could translate. And he basically in Italian tells the son, like, oh, yes, today we get 20 points for doing this and 30 points for doing that. And then, uh, you know, it's it's this heart heartwarming like moving movie about how this father is doing everything in his power to protect his son from the reality of the of this you know this genocide that's happening around him and he does such a good job that the son never for a minute realizes how much danger they're really in and and how messed up this whole thing really is and i I mean it's a little bit of a spoiler but towards the end of the movie the father literally willingly marches to his death to in order for his son to believe that they have won this game and to protect his son. And it's like, if you don't cry at the end of this movie, like I'm getting choked up now, just thinking about it. If you don't cry at the end of this movie, you are heartless. And it is, it is so moving and so good. And it deserved all of the accolades it's got. Roberto Benini, I've seen a bunch of his films. He's never been better. He deserved this award. Uh, I can't say enough good things. Life is beautiful from 1997. If you haven't seen this before, I can't recommend it strongly enough. It is fantastic. So this was like 97 when it came out. 1997, yeah. So yeah, this is definitely one of the ones on your list that I'm. I definitely gonna have to do to watch because I've always wanted to see it and oh, heard nothing so but good, good things about it. But I definitely it's so so good. Yeah. And it literally, it's it's almost feels like it's two separate movies. The mm-hmm. first half is this love story, this like almost tragic love story because you once you realize the time frame, you're like, Uh-oh. they better hook up to yeah. pretty soon because they're not gonna have a lot of time. Now the characters in the story don't know that, but you as the audience knows that, and so right. it's got this extra tragic element. And then the second half is, oh my God, now they're in this concentration camp. What's going to happen next? And it's just like, ah, just pulls on the heartstrings so much. Nice. It's it's so good. I can't say enough good things about it. Very good. Um, like I said, they're they're called moving pictures for a reason, oh, right? This will move you. If this awesome. doesn't move you, you don't have a movie. <laughs> you don't have a you don't have a, a heart. Oh I'm literally getting like choked up just thinking about the movie. I'm gonna have to go back and watch. It's been a while. Oh yeah, I've got to see it too. So good. Um, so I've done a lot of talking about film as art so far. And that's not going to change for my top two films. So my number two is probably one of the most visually important films ever made. I'd definitely be in the the top two, you know, Uh, Citizen Kane would be up there, but also would be this one. And this one might, it might even be the single most influential film in history. And that's Sergei Eisenstein's 1925 masterpiece, Battleship Potemkin. Again, like another one that I mentioned earlier with Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, it's silent film. But this movie uses the Russian Revolution as a backdrop. And the film basically follows the story of of a a crew of a Russian battleship. And they decide that they're going to rise up and start a mutiny against the officers. The officers at the beginning of the film serve the men this maggot-filled meat. And then when some of the men refuse to eat it, the officers round them up. And they form a firing squad on the deck. They're going to kill them. And that's when the mutiny happens. And then the crew takes the ship over and then they they sail the ship to the port city of Odessa. And this is where the people of the city are unified with the sailors. Only the military comes in and starts to basically methodically open fire 
on the citizens there. And it's here at this point of the film that we're treated to probably the single greatest scene in the history of film, the Odessa steps sequence. It's, it's a silent film, but there's no sound needed to convey what happens on the steps during this massacre of the people. And in fact, I I think it's due to the fact that the filmmaker didn't have sound you know, at, at his disposal, that that it made them heighten the other elements of the film. It, it, it It's like there's a saying that when a person loses one of their senses, like sight, for example, that the other senses become heightened, you know, and I think the best way to describe what you watch here is like, there's just no other way to describe it, really. The, the part when the baby carriage comes down the steps, it's just mm. visual mastery. It's quite simply the greatest scene in the history of filmmaking. Now, Brian De Palma gave this sequence an homage in um, 1987 when he made The Untouchables. Right. But, but even with color and sound, you, you you really get a chance to see how much more powerful the scene is in Battleship Potemkin. And I think if you're if you're a true film buff, you need to see this film. And, and if you've seen this film, then you need to see it again and again and again. And, and if you want to go to film school... Just watch Battleship Potemkin because they'll, they'll likely make you watch it anyway in film school. It, it, it's a master class on how to use film as a medium of art. So it's just so unbelievable. It's my number two. Yeah, I've never seen it in its entirety, but I've seen oh, lots of sequences, especially the sequence with the steps. I, I did have to study that in school, just that sequence. So we didn't see the whole movie. So I may have to do myself a, a service and go back and watch it start to finish. Yeah, you should. On to your number one. What's your number well, one? Well, before for? we do that, let's yeah. do oh, yeah, honorable our honorable mentions. Okay, so as expected, uh, you did hit. So I had Rashomon on my list of honorable mentions. You, we've already talked about that. Uh, so again, I'm going to stick with newer ones for the rest of my honorable mentions, which okay. I think is pretty safe. I don't think any of these will be on your list. So honorable mention from 2000, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I think a lot of people have seen. Yeah, this is uh, a martial arts masterpiece. It's one of the first times on film when you when they use the wires yes. to help with special effects. Yeah, the wire. They call yep, it fireworks. The yep. And then The Matrix, which came out in uh, in 1999, so the year before, sort of did a little bit of this as well. So it was like this was sort of the pioneer. And then a lot of the other movies that, that came out around this time started to borrow this. Uh, it stars Chow Yun-Fat, who is awesome and has been in uh, many great foreign films, which I suspect we may have a few more of those on our list. Um, we, we acknowledge that last year's best picture winner, straight out best picture winner was Parasite. Right. Uh, which is a Korean film. Uh, it's the first time a foreign language film has actually won the Academy Award for Best Picture and not just the Best Foreign Language Picture. Um, so, I, I mean, I felt it was kind of a cheat to put that on the list because it is very top of mind and mainstream. I think a lot of people have seen it. It's showing on HBO right now. So I think a lot of people are like, oh, yeah, hey, why not? Let's watch this. Um, I also want to point out that um, this director – of Parasite, one of his earlier movies is called Memories of Murder from 2003, which I saw in the theater, is fantastic. You want a good murder mystery? That one is top shelf awesome. And uh, my last one uh, is a movie from 2015. Again, all these ones I'm talking about I saw in the theater, which I'm mm. kind of proud to say. It's from 2015 from Norway, and it's called The Wave. And it's about a tidal wave that – that um, uh, devastates uh, uh, a little town in a Norwegian sort of fjord where there's a geologist that has been doing studies over the years. And he's like, Hey guys, there's, there could very well be like a flood down here that could devastate this. And I'm like, no, no, of course not. And of course what happens is there is, and much like a movie like deep impact where they're like, 
and a meteorite could hit the earth. And then it actually does. Same thing with this movie. It's called the wave. And there's all this, Oh my God, a wave could show up and the wave shows up and the special effects are fantastic. Uh, it was on, I think Netflix or maybe crave in Canada. Um, it's called the wave. I would, I would strongly encourage people to take a look at it. It's a good, uh, fast paced thriller kind of movie. A lot of the characters do speak English throughout parts of it, but it is still subtitled. Um, so those are my honorable mentions, crouch tiger, hidden dragon, parasite, memory of murder and the wave. Nice. So what, uh, what makes number one on your list? Uh, number one on my, well, do you want to do your honorable mentions or do you want to jump to my number one? Uh, I can do mine, I guess. Um, a couple ones I want to mention that didn't make my list. Uh, Fellini's La Dolce Vida. So good. Uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Weekend is, it's a bizarre film, but I just, oh, it's so, so good. Uh, Fritz Lang's Metropolis, another silent film. Uh, I would want to get Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal in there. A couple newer ones. Pan's Labyrinth from 2006 with by Guillermo del Toro. So, so good on so many levels. And then I'm done a lot of talking so far about film versus movies. There are two foreign quote unquote movies that I think I should mention. One is from 1998 and that's Run Lola Run by Tom Tekwar. It is unbelievable. And also uh, you mentioned uh, Chow Yun-Fat. Uh, one of his movies is from 1992 is Hard Boiled. John Wu. Um, The reason why I would mention that one is because I remember when I first saw it, uh, at the time I always thought Hollywood kind of had cornered the market on action films. And and I think most people believe that, you know, Hollywood, you know, is all about the action films. They, they do them so well with Schwarzenegger movies and stuff, but you watch hard boiled. Wow. (laughs) man, That is schooling Hollywood. This is how you make an action film. You know, it's just so good. Everything about it is just so good. So those would be my honorable mentions for sure. Well, your, your, your setup couldn't be better. My number one pick is an action film. Oh, good. What do you got? It's from 2011. It's called the raid. Or The Raid Redemption was, I think, how it was released in in mainstream theaters. When I saw it, it was called The Raid. I saw it at the North American premiere at the Toronto International Film Festival. I was going to say, you mentioned, sorry, you mentioned a lot. You've seen a lot of these in the theater. I wonder how many of them were at the Toronto International Film Festival. Most of them, I guess. All of them except for Life is Beautiful. I saw in the Toronto International Film Festival. Uh, So this one is, uh, it's from Indonesia. Uh, It won the Toronto International Film Festival's People's Choice Award, which is uh, often the movie that'll go on to win the Oscar. But as this was an action and not a drama, uh, I mean, no one thought it was going to win an Oscar. But uh, it, it, I mean, action movies generally don't get awards and accolades. So I think this is probably the, the, you know, the best kind of award it could get given its genre. So the premise is very straightforward, but oh my God, it was done so well. So you have like a drug kingpin who has taken over an apartment building. That's about, I think it's like a 30 story apartment building and has made it a haven for criminals. And the police are afraid to go there because 30 stories of criminals with guns and, and all sorts of other things. And the drug kingpin is on the top floor and he's got the whole thing wired with security and the, the cops just leave him alone. They're like, we, we can't, he is literally untouchable while he's in this fortress of this apartment. And the movie starts where you have this young, like uh, SWAT guy who puts together a team of like 20 elite police officers who says, we're going in, we're going in under the cover of darkness. We're going to sneak up to the 30th floor and we're going to arrest this guy. And we're going to put an end to this. We're going to get the, the untouchable guy. We're taking him down. And so the first 15 minutes you see them like get in and they sneak up and the, the director does a fantastic job of showing you exactly which floor they're on. Cause there's a lot of 
areas in the building where the floor number is painted on the walls. So you constantly know where people are in relation to the ground and the top. They get about halfway through the building and they get caught. And the drug kingpin goes on his, his loudspeaker and he says, hey, everybody who lives in this apartment, there's 30 cops in the building. I don't want any of them to leave. Kill them. And so for the next hour and 20 minutes, you have this elite SWAT team that gets split up and you have all these criminals that are armed to the teeth trying to kill them. So some of the cops try and get out. Some of the cops try and find a safe place to, to just hang out and defend. And some of the cops are like, no, 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 we're here with a purpose. If we don't get to the kingpin where none of us are getting out of here alive. And the action sequences are fantastic. And um, it, I think it I think it went on to do they did a couple of sequels um, with this concept. I can't remember. Honestly, I don't remember sort of who lives and who dies. It's been 10 years since I saw it. But I remember just being blown away. And I'm not a real big like martial arts action kind of movie guy. But this one really stuck with me. Um, it's it was, you know, I, I read some reviews on it this week while I was doing the homework and they were saying like it was groundbreaking. These characters in this movie use a style of martial arts that hadn't previously been showcased on film before. And the sequences are done like the director had a real good eye for how to how to shoot action sequences. And he, he does a good job of using the um, the various uh, set pieces on the various, like on one floor, there's like a drug lab and there's this big martial arts sequence that take place in a drug lab. And then there's a sequence where it's like, this sequence takes place in like the stairwell. So he does a really good job of saying like, well, if you're in an apartment and it's set up for these criminals, what kind of fights can happen in the various rooms? And yeah, it's, it's fantastic. It's a nonstop thrill ride. It's called The Raid or The Raid Redemption. It's from 2011, Indonesian film. Can't recommend it highly enough. It's my number one. Wow. I got to say, I'm a little bit surprised. I honestly thought that um, Pan's Labyrinth would be on your list, if not number one. Now, I, I don't really like it. I didn't really like it. I saw it again. Saw it at the TIFF. Yeah. Uh, it was it was an alternate choice. So with the Toronto International Film Festival, much like when you're registering mm-hmm. for like college classes, right. you submit your schedule with your number one and your number two picks and you sort of get what you get. And I remember I had a few slots where I couldn't get my number one. I couldn't get my number two. And then I just sort of went, what else is playing in this time slot? And I remember Pan's Labyrinth, the year I went, I, I was seeing 30 movies over a 10 day period. And it was my very last, my 30th pick. I couldn't find anything in the time slot. I'm like, what else? And then I'm like, Pan's Labyrinth. I have no idea what that is fine, I'll go see it. And I'm like, yeah, it was okay. I, I, it wasn't what I was expecting at all. Cause again, it was brand new. Like I hadn't heard anything about it. The special effects were great, but I don't know. It just, I didn't really care for it. And everyone's like, Oh my God, it's his masterpiece. I'm like, Hey, I'm not denying that. It just, it wasn't a movie that connected with me at all. I think the thing I liked about it. And so it's funny. Like, you know, I always make jokes. I never watch any new movies. I saw that movie twice in the theater. I liked it wow. so much. Yeah. I went back and saw it a second time. Um, I think the thing that I liked about it so much was the fact that it was like this dream world that this little girl creates that would make most kids frightened to death. Like it's oh, just, yeah. it's hell. But to her, it's so much better than the reality that she lives in, you know, in this, in this Nazi era the situation that she's in. I, I, I thought it was just brilliant. I just thought it was brilliant, but okay. So my number one, I'm going way back. Uh, and that's Le Grand Illusion from 1937. So Jean Renoir's Grand Illusion is not just the quintessential war film of all time. For me, it might just be the quintessential film of all time. If ever a film was a work of art, this is it. If I was going to make a list of the greatest films ever made, it would come down to Citizen Kane and Grand Illusion. I don't know if I could pick one over the other, 
I'm just, I'm such a film nerd. And so I got to tell a story. So when my wife was pregnant with our first child, I remember, I remember that day so well. She ate lunch and then she was really, really tired. And she's like, oh, I just need to lay down and, and go to sleep. So she fell asleep on the couch and I decided to watch a movie. So I put on Grand Illusion and about uh, three quarters of the way through the film, she went into labor. She woke up and I was faced with a choice. Do I get her to the hospital or do I finish watching the film? <laughs> <laughs> that's how good this movie is you know um if you've ever seen the great escape or casablanca you know just just know that neither one of those movies would even exist if it wasn't for grand illusion this film is unbelievable it challenges so many things it, it, it you know it, it challenges politics and religion and language and social class nationalism basically the film says all this needs to be stripped away. And instead we just need to explore our common experience, you know, our shared humanity. You know, this film is an absolute work of art. I, I, there's no other way to describe it. I don't know how else to describe it to you other than art. Um, It's, it's like, it's like looking at a great painting just in a film, you know? So even though it's, it's set during war, it takes place during world war one, actually. Uh, But the, the film really just states that, that war accomplishes nothing. War isn't to be glorified. And then the funny thing is the, in the, in the film, they never even show a battle. You know, it takes place inside of a prisoner of war camp. Instead of focusing on, on war, it focuses on humanity. And when Marichal escapes with Rosenthal and they meet Elsa, she's lost her husband. She's lost her three brothers all to the war and all basically for nothing. So the film also deals with uh, themes like freedom and social constructs, but ultimately really the film is just about human relationships and how we question those relationships and how important those relationships are, especially by focusing on our, on, on the similarities that we have rather than the superficial differences. I, I could watch this movie over and over and over, and it will always, always inspire me. It's, it's just like I say, it's like looking at a great piece of art. You could just sit there with a great piece of art and just stare at it for hours. And like, Great art, you know, it, it just inspires you and it forces you to look at the world in different ways. And the thing is, I see this movie everywhere in pop culture. When you watch The Great Escape, you see Grand Illusion. When you watch Casablanca, like I mentioned, you see Grand Illusion. When you watch The Shawshank Redemption, you see Grand Illusion. When you watch Tarantino's Inglorious Bastards, you see Grand Illusion. Great art inspires great art and Grand Illusion is it's just great art. And it is the best foreign film I have ever seen. So easily, it is number one on my list. I've never seen it. <laughs> that doesn't surprise I, I'm familiar me. with it. <laughs> yeah. I've never seen it. Uh, well, at least with Battleship Potemkin, I've never seen it in its entirety, but I've seen right. sequences. This one, I've never seen it. I don't I, even think I've seen a minute of it. I, I, would, I would be very interested to have you watch it and see if you think if it's as good as me. I don't know. I just, to me, I, it's like one of those things that you just can't explain. Like I can't explain how can I, how can I put this in words? It, it's almost like I don't understand all of the things that go into making like high quality chocolate, but I know when I eat high quality chocolate that I know it's good, you know, versus like, you know, dollar store chocolate. Sure. And, and I don't necessarily understand all of the things that go into great art, but I know great art when I see it. And this is great art. It's just so good. It's just, it's, 
I don't know. It's it's like uh, it's like watching the Mona Lisa for two hours. It's just uh, unbelievable. God, I love this. Well, I, I kind of feel like uh, your list and my list were like, you know, here's the university list, and then here's the stoner list. It's like. <laughs> My list just doesn't seem to be anywhere near to the caliber of yours. But. I don't know. But the thing is, too, like, I'm a foreign film lover. Like, I love foreign film. Like I say, I can't believe it's taken us five seasons of doing this podcast to finally talk about foreign film. And also, you know, like, as you always accuse me, I sometimes give a lot of the textbook answers, and I certainly did tonight. But Yeah, what I think this is a topic that lends itself yeah, to that. It I think. Honestly, since since I've stepped in uh, to Yancey's shadow for this show, this to me feels more like a Yancey Chris podcast than any of the other yeah. top fives. Because usually Probably. you and I, yeah. uh, you know, we're not that different in our age. Like we're no, there's not that many years between us. But this is one where I kind of felt that we were really going to be mm. very very different lists, and I think that we we definitely were. So I, I mean, your yours were definitely textbook picks, and the mm. ones that I haven't seen, I certainly have intentions of seeing. I hope you try to watch at least one or two on my list because I think you would like them, knowing how much you like foreign films. Yeah, I was going to say it'll challenge both of us to look at each other's lists and, and maybe watch some of them. But anyway, on that note, let's have some fun with Caveman. Okay, so Derek, you know, we we often think of the Academy Awards as being strictly for Hollywood films. And that's certainly the case for the majority of nominees. But however, there's been numerous examples where foreign films have been nominated for Oscars. So tonight, I'm going to see how many you can name. Okay? okay. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to name the Oscar category, the year, and the synopsis of the film. All you have to do is name the film. Just keep in mind, all the correct answers are foreign films. Okay? Are these are are they the winners, or they were just the nominees nope, in that category? Just they were nominated in that category. Okay. 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 So we're going to start with Best Picture. Okay. okay? Let's start with an easy one. Best Picture... 2018, the synopsis, a year in the life of a middle-class family's maid in Mexico City in the early 1970s. Yep. The, the answer is Roma. Very good. See, you can do it, it this. Was, yeah, you it was fantastic. It's okay. available. It was a Netflix film. It's probably still on Netflix. If you haven't seen it, you should. You want to talk about art? It's a, a, an exceptionally good artistic film. Okay. So, best picture. 2000, a young Chinese warrior steals a sword from a famed swordsman and then escapes into a world of romantic adventure with a mysterious man in the frontier of the nation. Uh, was that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon? It was. See, yeah. you've got it's this. Like we already mentioned that one tonight. Yeah, there you go. Okay, best picture, 1937. During World War I, Two French soldiers are captured and imprisoned in a German POW camp. Several escape attempts follow until they are eventually sent to a seemingly inescapable fortress. Isn't that the one you just talked about? La Grande Illusion? It is. See? Yeah, I was listening. Yeah. I was, yeah. I was Very just on my phone while you were talking. There you go. Okay. Documentary feature. 2005. In the Antarctic... Every March, since the beginning of time, the quest begins to find the perfect mate and start a family. Yeah, that was uh, March of the Penguins. Yes. Is that a foreign film, really? Yep, it was. A, it was. It was. A, it was a French film, and uh, and and it, won, it actually won. It was a winner. So yeah. Okay, documentary feature from 1999: Aging Cuban musicians 
whose talents had been virtually forgotten following Castro's takeover of Cuba, are brought out of retirement by Rye Cooter, who traveled to Havana in order to bring the musicians together, resulting in triumphant performances of extraordinary music and resurrecting the musicians' careers. Um, was that the Buena Vista Social Club? It was the Buena Vista Social Club. Yes. Nice. I'm impressed I remembered that. All right. Documentary feature, 1971. Oh, boy. An in-depth exploration of the various reactions by the French people to the Vichy government's acceptance of Nazi invasion. It doesn't sound familiar. I have no idea. It's the sorrow and the pity. If you say it is, I believe. I had to mention. Never heard of it. I had to mention it because uh, this is uh, one that Woody Allen kept bringing up in Annie Hall. One of my favorite movies. Oh, it's been so long since I saw Annie Hall. Okay. Animated feature film. Okay. I like where this is going. 2002. The first year of this award category. During her family's move to the suburbs, a sullen 10-year-old girl wanders into the world ruled by gods, witches, and spirits. And where humans are changed into beasts. Wow. It, uh, it also won the very first animated feature film Oscar. Was this uh, My Neighbor Totoro? It was Spirited Away. Oh, I think it's in that same vein. Mm. I mean. All right. Animated feature film from 2003. When her grandson is cap- kidnapped during the Tour de France, Madame Souza and her beloved Pooch Bruno team up with the Belleville sisters, an aged song and dance team from the days of Fred Astaire to rescue him. Uh, Well, I think he sort of gave it away. Is it the triplets of Belleville? It is the triplets of Belleville. Yes. Congratulations. Never seen it, but I I know of it. Yeah, you know of it. Okay. Animated feature film. Again, right in your wheelhouse. From 2000. Yeah. Okay. What's that? A lot of cartoons here. Yeah, yeah, you like it. From 2007, animated feature film. A precocious and outspoken Iranian girl grows up during the Islamic Revolution. Wow. Um, It's based on a graphic novel. Yeah, this sounds very, very familiar. Um, uh, Is it... uh, Man, I I hope I don't get this wrong. Is this the boy in the striped pajamas? No, it's Persepolis. Persepolis. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Art direction. Two thousand and one. An innocent and naive girl in Paris has her own sense of justice. She decides to help those around her, and along the way, discovers love. That doesn't sound familiar at all. I have no idea. Amelie. No, never Amelie. seen it. Okay. Art direction. I'm going back to nineteen sixty one. Oh boy. Okay. These are going to get harder and harder, obviously. No, they haven't been hard already? Okay, go on. No, you've done pretty good. A series of stories follows a week in the life of a philandering paparazzo journalist living in Rome. Hmm. Is that eight and a half? Oh, it's called, it's La Dolce Vida. Oh. Ah. All right, cinematography. This one you got. 1982, cinematography. The claustrophobic, claustrophobic world of a World War II German U-boat. Boredom, filth, and sheer terror. Uh, is it Das Boot? It is Das Boot. Congratulations. I've never, never seen it. Oh, oh it's so oh, I've heard so it's outstanding. Good. A lot of people oh, have given so me good. crap for that over the years. Oh, yeah. you've never seen that. Yeah, it was close to making this list for me. Okay, costume design, 1956. Oh, a, 
Apur village under attack by bandits recruits seven unemployed samurai to help them defend themselves. Well, I gotta think that's seven samurai. Which was remade uh, uh, recently as like a Western with uh, Denzel Washington and Chris Pratt and uh, Ethan Hawke. It was it was not great. It was okay. It just it wasn't great. Why bother even doing that? I don't know. Anyhow, next question. All right. Costume design. 1982. Two young Swedish children experience the many comedies and tragedies of their family, the Ekdals. Wow. That doesn't sound familiar at all. I have no idea. You've got to be a big foreign film fan or know Bergman's Fanny and Alexander. Oh, I've actually seen Fanny and Alexander. Oh, yeah. We had to do a whole whole, uh, unit on them. Wild Strawberries and Fanny and Alexander. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. The next two I think you might get. Okay, so best best director. Okay. Uh, now, the thing is, for the past two years, just as an aside, the Oscar for Best Director has gone to a foreign film. Yeah, hasn't it been like six of the past eight years it's gone to those guys? No, no, two. The three Mexican guys, the, right? the last two years, uh, the Oscar for Best Director has gone to... Uh, oh, no, the last one was from Korea, right. Yeah, but before Bong that, Jong-Hoon was, for yeah. uh, Parasite in 2019. Parasite. And Alfonso and for, Cuaron for Roma for in 2018. Roma. So, Derek, yeah. can you yeah. name the foreign film that was named for Best Director in 1979? I'm going to give you the synopsis. Okay? No, I can't. Okay, give me a synopsis. I'll give you the synopsis. I think you're going to get it. The manager of a St. Tropez nightclub featuring drag entertainment and his star attraction are a gay couple. Madness ensues when his straight son brings oh. home a fiance and her ultra-conservative parents to meet them. Yeah, this it's uh, La Cage aux Folles. Which, you could get this. when we did our when yes. we did a podcast when you and Yancey were doing it, I came on as a guest and one of the topics we did was best remakes. This was one of my best remakes was the Birdcage with Robin Williams. Love, love, love the remake. Yep, there you go. Okay, and the last one I have for you is a makeup Oscar in 1982. Okay, this story takes place in prehistoric time when three tribesmen search for a new fire source. Is this a Canadian film? It might be. Is it Quest for Fire? Congratulations. It is Quest for Fire. (laughs) See, you did all right. You got quite a few of them. So it's all good. All right. I'll tell you what. That was tough. But the ones I knew, it's like so many of the other ones. It's like you either know it or you don't with these ones. Exactly. Okay. So next week, it's my turn to nominate a movie from Gen X. So Derek... As we've mentioned before here on the show, not only are we podcasters, obviously, but we are also podcast listeners ourselves, right? Yep. And and as you know, I'm also a huge baseball fan. I used to be. I, I, I am familiar with that particular aspect of your hobby. Yes. At, at one time, I was I was a somewhat well known person in the the fantasy baseball community here as a podcaster. But but you know that was back in the day. But anyway, although I, I I've left the baseball podcast world, I still have several friends there, and I, I do listen to quite a few ba- baseball podcasts still to this day. And one of the very best ones I listen to is is the Dingers podcast, and I got to talking to Robert Rose. He's, he's known best on Twitter as, as Robbie Rose, at Robbie Rose one on Twitter. And so he, he asked me about, about the movie, The Mighty Ducks. And he wanted to know my opinion of the movie since it's his all time favorite film. Well, guess what? I've never seen it. 
Now, now keep in mind, it came out in 1992, which is beyond my cutoff of 1989, you know, for movies. Yeah, but you have young kids and that's a pretty good kids movie. Yeah. Being being that we live in Canada and it's about hockey, I'm a little surprised that your children haven't asked to watch it or you haven't actually thought to watch it with them. But well, so so what I I know. So what I did was I invited Robbie to come on the podcast and he's going to join us next week as we review the 1992 Emilio Estevez film, The Mighty Ducks. Keep in mind, I've never seen this. So are you up for the challenge, Derek? Yeah, I was going to say, I, I haven't seen this since it first came out on video in like the mid 90s. And I think I only ever saw it once. And it's I want to say the movie spawned two or three sequels. Oh, yeah, I think uh, so, too. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I saw the second one because there was all this controversy. The second movie, they went to a shootout or something and it was like, oh, my God, shootouts suck. And then all of a sudden the NHL may put in shootouts. Uh, <laughs> yeah, definitely. Let's do it. I'll go back and watch it. I'll see okay. how it holds up or doesn't. And uh, we'll bring on our uh, we'll bring on a guest. Yeah, we'll- Robbie will come on next week and join us and, and we can talk about that. And that'll be a lot of fun. Um, if you want to reach out to us on Twitter again, at Amaron underscore DM for Derek at C McBrien for me and popgoesyourworld.com is our website with all of our contact information. This is Chris McBrien for Derek Myers saying thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 